1: Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens, and exclusive extras, just head to IQ2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Described as one of the most important and blazingly original writers of his generation, American author George Saunders is a master of the short story. He joins us today on the podcast to discuss the voices that make up his insightful, sometimes hilarious and disturbing stories. Reflecting on his newly released collection of short stories, Liberation Day, George Saunders is joined by critic John Self to explore the voices in his stories and how they cut into the absurdist experience of what it means to be human. Here's John with more.
2: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm John Self and I'm joined today by George Saunders. In 2017, George won the Booker Prize for Lincoln and the Bardo an experimental novel which explored Abraham Lincoln's grief after the death of his young son, Willie. But today, we're here to speak about his new collection, Liberation Day, a return to his original form, the short story. In nine stories, which range from a hell-themed section of an underground amusement park to dystopian alternative realities, he manages to cover immense ground, exploring the shared absurdities and horrors of what it means to be human today. George, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for having me, John. Nice to be here. And welcome to the UK. You're here for a, a few days. Do you do you get different responses? to your work in different countries? Is there a particular type of British George Saunders reader?
3: I I, I feel very understood here. I, I Yeah, I've, I've always um, uh, had a great time here and, and people seem to go right to the heart of the book. So it's really, really great.
2: That's good. That's good. And Liberation Day is your first collection in, in almost 10 years, uh, as I said at the intro. And after two books, which were slight departures for you, a novel and, and the collection of essays and a swim in a pond in the rain. Does it feel good to be back? It does. I was kind of writing these stories all through all of that,
3: but um, to have them all in one place is really nice. That, the story form is something I've been doing since I was in my 20s, and it just feels like home. And it feels like in that mode, my subconscious is kind of ornery, you know, and it kind of takes me places I, I didn't know I was going to go and teaches me things I didn't I didn't necessarily want to know. <laughs> so it's it's a good friend.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. And did you say you've been writing stories since your 20s? I mean, do you still get uh, excited or even, even nervous when a new book comes out? Oh, very much. Yeah. It's always, I mean, that's part of it, I think, is to keep the whole
3: thing new. Uh, don't phone anything in. That's how you become a hack. You know, if you think you you know what you're doing, you become a, a robot. So, you know, writing the stories is always a process of trying to get yourself into trouble a little bit, trying to confuse yourself and, and get rid of the old tricks. And then you very confidently put them together and then they go out in the world and you, you know, you
2: just have no, uh, no idea what will happen. So it's kind of a kind of a thrill. So let's talk about Liberation Day. Uh, this is a, a collection which, uh, which uh, to my mind, in, in part, confirms you in your status as the, the laureate of dystopian historical reenactment theme parks. I mean, there are stories here, uh, thinking of the title of the story, Liberation Day in Ghoul, where people are, they're living or working or slaving in these places for the, perhaps for the benefit of visitors or for others who may or may not ever turn up. And they're, they're oppressed, but they don't realize they're oppressed, at least to begin with. What is it that draws you to these scenarios? You know, really, I mean, this is kind of a a strange answer, but I
3: try not to have any plans about stories when I'm starting them. I just want to go where the fun is and where uh, often it's a voice that's kind of in my head and I can't quite figure out where it comes from. So the first step for me is always to try to know as little as possible about the story. You know, don't have any intention, don't have any politics, Uh, just launch in and almost start, it's almost like stand up. You know, you start doing a little bit of improv where you're channeling a certain voice, and then uh, that's the fun part. And then you have to sort of figure out why is that person talking that way, you know, or or what's the situation that causes him to talk that way. So that, in a sense, is plot, really. You know, once you you write yourself into a mess uh, and then kind of like Houdini, then you try to, try to get out of it. And so for me, the trick is always to start with anything, really, just um, literally anything in the world, if it seems like fun. And then through the revision process, you're trying to get it to the point where it would speak to a reader's... Deep heart, you know, even though it starts in a, a hell themed theme park or the Battle of the Little Bighorn, the idea is that by the end of it, the reader is going to feel like, oh, he was going for the deep stuff all along. You know, he, he was kind of tending the um, sort of classic work of the short story all along, which is to connect two, two minds, you know. So it's, it's kind of a fun thing, but the main thing is to baffle yourself, I think, you know, not be in control of it. Because when you're in control of it, you're basically losing contact with the reader, you're just, you're sort of phoning it in. Whereas if you're a little confused and you're mindful of the ways in which the reader might be confused,
2: then you can kind of go on that journey together. And can we talk about the use of language in your stories? I mean, it means that effectively your stories are very difficult to describe, in fact. Um, you know, so but my advice to listeners is just to read them, but um, because the language is not so much describing the thing as it is the thing, if that makes sense. And in, in, in a story like Ghoul, uh, we see the use of these sort of horrible mimsy euphemisms, you know, where a character the narrator describes... He refers to certain recent undesirable occurrences. One of what he means is people being kicked to death. And is it fair to say that a theme of your work is how we use language to conceal as much as we do to reveal? Yeah, I think that's right. And there's, there's even kind of, to my ear, a
3: little bit of poetry in that in that concealment. You know, if, if somebody is, for example, in the corporate world where I used to work, you know, there's there's a formula for avoiding saying the unpleasant thing that would implicate you. And so, you know, if you think of poetry as being language, it's somehow full of life because of intention, then that corporate speak is sort of a, a form of diabolical poetry. But but really, you know, at another level, I think, uh, you know, I teach writing. And one of the things I've noticed is that a, a person kind of has to use what they have. And this whole sort of craft trajectory is just a process of finding out what you've got that maybe other people don't. And so for me, ever since I was young, I have a very busy too busy mind and have always had also a lot of fun with, um, kind of verbal jokes, you know, doing impersonations. And when we were kids, the highest form was to, to invent a character, give that character a voice and create a sort of a biography for that person and then stay in character for a while until you were really annoying. (laughs) Uh, so that's something that I've always, I just, I don't know why, but I just enjoy it. So that was really my pathway into Mm -hmm. fiction is just do these voices and stuff. And, um, move around especially with working class and corporate language and just try to find the poetry in them
2: you know, yeah and what that what that means is when we have that corporate language or those euphemisms what it means that when someone does speak plainly to us it cuts through us you know there's there's a line in google where there's a letter and someone says what a joke the way we live you know the worry the suspicion the stress the meanness and it just you know it just hit me and much harder than it would have if this has been a story just written in a kind of a blank register if you like
3: oh that's really interesting yeah and it's kind of like that in life isn't it every so often the You know, we've got these elaborate structures for falsity, actually. You know, and every so often somebody gets desperate and speaks a simple truth, and you think, "Oh my God, thank thanks for that."
2: Yeah, Yeah. and and we should say that the you know we've talked about hell themed uh, amusement parks and and the terrible things that your characters undergo, but we should say the story is very funny, uh, but also very sad and and often moving at the same time. And each quality, in a sense, intensifies the other. Um, Are you are, are you using? comedy as a way of lowering the reader's defenses, or is it just a, just a vision of the way you see the world?
3: I think it's probably the first more. You know, it's it's a little bit, I think the stories are a bit like, um, I'm on the motorcycle and you're in the sidecar. And I'm trying to, through, uh, really through tone of voice, I'm trying to keep you close to me in the sidecar. So when I go left, you go left. When I go right, you go right. If there's something distancing, then I go left and you don't hear about it for 40 minutes and we're, we're out of connection. So I think the humor is a way of kind of, you know, reaching over and patting the reader's hand and saying, yeah, this is a crazy situation. I know. And it's, it is a way of, of actually two, two sides. One is kind of a sentimental, uh, Khalil Gibran sort of person, you know, and the other one is deeply Chicago sarcastic and, and dark. So I think in a certain way, I'm just sort of turning on and turning off those two sides to keep you with me. So if I get a little bit too, um, sort of elegiac and serious, and I see you drifting off to sleep. I'll do a fart joke. <laughs> suddenly you're back in it. And part of that, part of the dynamic of that is now suddenly you don't know who I am anymore. You thought you had me pegged as the elegiac guy. Well, with the fart joke, suddenly you're you're, you're interested again because you can't quite make sense of, of, um, of who I am. So I think part of that, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a seduction in that you're uh, trying, you know, I mean, the ultimate goal is to keep the reader on the line. Because if you don't, then you don't get anything. You don't get theme. You don't get politics. So it's kind of, a, I, I suppose, in a certain way, a charm offensive. And each writer has to kind of find out what she has to, to offer. Uh, and then you know, we might see um, form and structure and all that. It's just patterns of bringing the different gifts to bear, if you will.
2: Yeah, yeah. You said there about, um, you know, you, if you sense that you're losing the reader at a particular point. I mean, do you, do you have trusted readers that you, you discuss your work with, or do you, do you just trust your own ear? For most of it, I'm, I'm kind of a,
3: sort of mentally imitating a first time reader, which of course is impossible. But what you're trying to do is pretend that you haven't read the thing a thousand times and say, okay, if I hadn't, where would I be? So I do, that's most of it is just that kind of impersonation. And at the very end, I, I'll give it to my wife, and she's a very um, good reader and also a very, um, she's got no poker face. So if, if, you know, if it's, if, if he doesn't like it, I can just see it on her, on her face. And if she does, she responds very genuinely and emotionally. So that's kind of the big checkpoint for me is that, that one. Um, but mostly it's kind of, you know, trying to see if I hadn't read this before, where would I be right now? What would I be expecting? uh based on that do i have a way of confounding my own expectations so it's kind of an insane process really but you actually can get better at it which is strange
2: yeah um and and, an effect of the way that you you use language in stories and the voice in stories is that you you tend to throw the reader in unprepared um and they have to do a little bit of work uh that's not that common an approach you know i think of people like you william golding or kazu ishiguro and Nobel prize winners by the way though I'm not making any promises uh, but what are, are are the benefits of that approach to the to the reader and to the writer where you have to do that little bit extra work to get into the story right well that I think that kind of comes out of my attempt to be um, truthful to the
3: experience of the character so in that story ghoul you know this guy works in an underground hell theme park but he doesn't think much of it he's never known anything else so he's not going to stop and say hello. You know, this is you're underground and anything he tells us, he's going to tell us at speed in the same way that he would talk to a colleague at work. So in a way, it's just authenticity. You know, if you um, if you have a story on a fishing boat, the character doesn't stop and explain all the rigging. He he already knows it. Uh, So that's kind of the one level. And the second level is, I think, to do with um, the thrill of the chase. You know, if I go into a story a little faster than you're used to without the expositional superstructure, Then it always reminds me a bit of going to a a museum tour, you know, and a tour guide who's a little manic says, come on, let's go and sprints off. You know, your inclination is to follow and you you hear her and she's in the middle of a sentence. You haven't quite caught it. Then, you know, you're still interested. So I think part of that, the the overall dynamic that I see is at the beginning of the story, you doubt me. Why are you going so fast? Why aren't you stopping to explain? I'm trying to give you just enough to keep you following me perhaps a little grouchily, you know. Uh, and then but along the way, I keep throwing little tidbits so the, the, the world starts to f- take more form in your mind. and by the end you're a full participant. And the hope is that uh, somehow that means of expression, well, it'll teach you to read the story first of all, and then by the end that'll have a greater effect than if I told it to you in a more straightforward way. You know with Lincoln and the Bardo, that was the whole thought is I'm gonna rather, you know, maybe painfully teach you, the method of this book in the first 30 pages which will definitely cause some people to bail out which it turns out it did <laughs> but then if, if if we can do that construction project together and you understand the sort of unspoken rules of engagement then theoretically there's a big payoff for you at the end when this language and structural structural language that we developed together gets you into a deeper place than you otherwise could have been put.
2: And had you mentioned Lincoln in the Bardo just there? I'm wondering if if the I mean I'm guessing that it won you a, a new readership or a, a wider readership. And uh, I, I remember Julian Barnes in a similar situation saying that uh, he had mixed feelings about that because he quite liked his old readership. But uh, does that mean that you've had any sense of when you've been writing new stories, a sort of a sense of serving that new readership? who may not be familiar, or do you do you stick with your your, your vision? It's kind of like that, but maybe a more positive thing, which is it with that
3: book, I took a little bit of a stretch in my mind anyway, towards, I guess, a broader palette, you know, a little, it's, it's not really a realistic book, but but it's emotionally more realistic than than maybe the other stories. So, so the fact that it got the prize and got the readership, I feel a little bit emboldened, you know, to, especially to, um, you know, try to invoke sort of positive valences, you know, to try to praise what is praiseworthy. And, you know, it's probably not the best that I need confidence. I need a prize to do that. But somehow it's um, just the idea that, you know, suddenly, oh, I actually can talk to more people than I thought I could. You know, I I, I can maybe um, have a story that appeals to people beyond the literary circle a little bit. So that's so that's and that's kind of my, you know, that was always my my goal. I think I grew up thinking, you know, Hemingway, thinking Dickens and Toni Morrison later, people who really spoke to the to everybody. So, but it's, you know, in a sense it's a technical problem. You sort of begin with something edgy and dark and somewhat excluding of certain people. Now the the race is to kind of open off a little bit and um, be more
1: confident and more inclusive. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges, big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful, so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp h-e-l-p slash intelligence.
2: Um, you, you mentioned earlier uh, how you start with the the voice um, for for your stories and in your last book, in, in a swim in a pond in the rain, you said that writing for you is more of a, a I think a feeling process than a, a thinking process, something like that. Um, I wanted to talk about the story. One of my favorites in the collection in the new collection is a thing at work. Where you have this uh, middle class and working class employee clashing, and their their sort of manager caught in the middle, and it's driven narratively by these sort of freewheeling, very funny internal monologues. Can you talk a little bit about how that story? Which voice did you start with? How did the that story come about?
3: Yeah, I, I started years ago, maybe ten years ago, with the, the Brenda, the working class woman, kind of loosely. Not not as there was somebody I worked with uh, back at the in the tech writing days who disappeared from work for about 10 days and it turns out she'd been in jail for <laughs> bouncing bouncing checks and it was a very sweet person and so I wasn't really thinking about her but of that circumstance of somebody who's you know coming into a corporate environment uh trying to sort of put on a certain uh a face but in life is really suffering and it's just barely making it so she was first and then um there were a lot of versions that I didn't quite know what to do with it and then at one point, I, I introduced a second character who was harshly judging that woman, uh, kind of a, a reader surrogate, saying, "Oh gosh, you know, you don't want to talk to her because she just goes on and on, and she's, you know, a little bit of a little bit of, of class snobbery," and that seemed to be the thing that opened it up. was a little bit of a rivalry between those two, but but that story, I, I enjoy that kind of story where you, I actually have three different points of view uh, in it, so. It starts off to be, I think, a bit of a comic put down of that woman, really. And then as you keep concentrating on each person, it becomes a little bit holographic. And you can kind of see, you know, in in this very small way what human tragedy is, which is three monkey minds sitting in their offices, churning, 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 telling their version of something. And then you go into the hallway and you get, you know, get the explosion of those competing views.
2: 10 years, did you say that story started off? So you're, you, this is a very long process. If you, you put a story down and come back to it or let your subconscious work on it, as I think Martin Innes tends to talk about, is that?
3: Yes, because with this one, I had an idea of what it was. And every time I tried it, it just would kind of lock up. So at that time, I, I would just say, well, yeah, there's, there's three or four good pages there. Let's just put it down and come back and then when you come back, you can sort of see the stuff that's impeding you, you know, the kind of stuff that's just in there because he typed it. So he stripped that away. So it's a lot of patience, you know, really like, and it's interesting as a teacher of writing, you think you should be more efficient than, I think I should be more efficient than I am. But part of that job is really to say, well, you're just not ready yet. You know, that, that there will be a story that comes out of this, but if you start stage managing it, that's the worst thing you could do. So I put it down, um, and then there's a lot of, I think of it as Rubik's Cube work, where with this one, I had um, the second voice of this woman, Jen, uh, and I actually had a third voice that I ended up taking out. And so you're just kind of playfully, you know, moving parts around, clipping off the end and moving them, and you're hoping for for two sections to speak to each other in some way that seems undeniable. And then the other moment is just that moment when somehow somebody says something that gets my attention. And I think, oh, okay, you said that the world is going to respond this way and test you. Like in a a story from 10th of December called Victory Laugh, there was a moment where there was this young, very innocent kind of sweet girl and she's musing to herself. And she says, "Um, you know, to be good, all you have to do is be good. You know, which is something at 15, I thought, you know, like, well, it's so easy. What are, what's with all these divorces and addictions, you idiots? You know, just be good. So, but so I, you know, that was just a, a sort of a riff, really. Just she says this. And then the uh, sort of narrative part of yourself says, oh, wait a minute, say that again. To be good, all you have to do is be good. Ah, okay. So now I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to see if that's true or not. Let's see if you can be good under pressure, you know. So, so, it's one of the benefits of the voice is it actually generates plot if you're if you're listening carefully.
2: And then I suppose then that you know if 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 you're following that process, there must be a a risk of of not knowing when to stop or what maybe wanting to to keep working it sometimes.
3: Exactly. yeah, that's it. And then I you know one of the the um sort of the loose theories that I have about the story is that, okay, you've got the overstory, which is what's actually happening day to day and who lives who dies and so on but then all along there's an understory uh that i think is related to joyce's epiphany you know but there's something going on under the story that you as the writer don't really know about but the story's cooking it up and the idea is that by the end it will dawn on you at speed it'll it'll suddenly break through the surface so in this one it really had to do with the decision that the boss has to make about whether to fire this woman or not. I didn't know that for many months, but then it came up. So then once you feel that, you say, okay, that was actually what the story was about, is would this man who's had a long memory about his beloved mother who was similar to this working class woman, would he support her or not? Once you realize that, then when that decision gets taken, the story is actually over and you should rush for the exit. So the understory has revealed itself then that's it. We don't care about the postscript. We don't care about the next day. We just care about about that. So it, there's, as you suggest, there's a lot of overwriting, writing the next two or three days and going, you know, actually, nothing happens there that escalates. So we can just leave it. And the essential curiosity of the reader had been answered by that the understory coming up.
2: And speaking of that, th- that's a, a, a workplace story. Um, I think it worked and speaking of workplace has been my, my, my copy of your first book, civil war landed by decline says, um, George Saunders works, works, not worked, um, works as a geophysical engineer in Rochester, New York. Did you miss that time when you worked as well as, as, as writing? I know you really teach creative writing, but it's all in the same uh, boat, I guess. I, m- I miss the, um, I guess the immersion in, I mean, at that time we were, we had no money
3: and you know, I was working full time, riding on the bus, writing at night. So I kind of missed that sense of being, well, I don't know if I miss it, but the sense of being under the foot of the culture was kind of, you know, productive. But, I, you know, what I've done is try to simulate that. I do some journalism trips uh, for, uh, for the New Yorker and for GQ. So the idea is to just sort of try to work yourself into a state of confusion. Because I think one of the curses of of, of being old is that you you know, the mind starts to solidify. I know what's true. I know my politics. I know the world, which for an artist is death. You know, you can't, you have to be really unsure every time. So I, I just sort of try to get out into the world enough to overthrow that, you know, that sense of certainty that, that comes with age.
2: Um, and another of my, my, my favorite stories in the book was um, The moment of Bold Action, which is this, uh, this woman who's a, well, she, she's a writer and she's um, you know, scrabbling around and desperately in her life for ideas, for for stories. You have know, the trusty little opener, the discontented dog, the peanut butter thingy. And I, I wondered if, you know, do you actively seek out ideas for stories? Do you wait for things to come to you? Does, does either have a better hit rate? You know, I'm a
3: real scavenger. Like that beginning, that story came out of another story from years ago. And I had a scene in there of a mother waiting for her kid to come home. It didn't work in that story. So I just, but it was, they had some good jokes in it, really, so a good riff, you know? So I just plucked it out and saved it. And then just sort of by coincidence was reading it. Oh, that's kind of fun. And, you know, we talked earlier about trying to um, befuddle yourself. And if you, I find if I take a fragment like that and you free it from the original matrix, then it, you're giving it a lot of autonomy. It's going to tell you what it wants you to do next. So I'm, I'm a real, uh, a, a recycler, you know, something, if, if, if I can stumble onto a good riff, I'll just keep it around forever. And um, I suppose in the you know, if I had a, a blank page, yeah, it's just voice. You know, I, I try to I make sure not to have a, well, actually in that story, her problem is she wants to vet every story. She she has an idea, she tells it through the end, and then she discards it. And that's familiar to me. You know, that, <laughs> that feeling where you say, well, I'll write the story, but only if it'll be good, you know, well, that, you know, so she, she's got a little bit of a, um, completion problem because she completes the stories in her mind and then and then the sides are no good uh so for me the part of the thing is if i can start something not have any idea if it'll be good not have any idea what it wants to be then i'm really happy uh and the minute i start to have a you know a plan i i know i'm a, i'm i'm
2: in trouble so. yeah and, and, and interestingly of course the, the the one time when she does find herself gripped by the news is whenever she's writing her her essay of her what what has happened to her son, or you know, and, um, and that's a really interesting moment, isn't it? Well, I think there her sin is that she she writes it, but she doesn't revise it. You know, so she so she does her first
3: draft, and it's quite. I, I think she's it's a kind of a reactionary uh, extreme piece, but she doesn't reread it and change it. And then the next person who reads it is her husband, and he gets the kind of evil power of it and goes out and does something stupid. <laughs>
2: It's tough being a writer, you know, you have to... Yeah, you know. yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and you've, uh, you've always, in your stories, warned us about, the, I guess, the dangers of allowing us to, allowing ourselves to stop thinking, or rather to have our thinking dictated by what others want us to think. But in these stories, there seems to be maybe a little more pessimism about the benefits of resistance. Is that fair? I mean, the story Love Letter sounds very much like, I was going to say post-Trump America, or perhaps I should say inter-Trump America, my God. Yeah, you know, I, I to me, they're... they're they're
3: hopeful stories, just I think because they're true to their beginnings. You know, in other words, for me, uplift or hope or, or, or that is, it has to do with the story staying artistically true to itself. So when I read the end of a Flannery O'Connor story, which are never peppy, you know, I feel uplifted because I've seen someone do their work really well and honor, honor the truth. But, on, but also, I would have to confess that the last five or six years, you know, it, it, dawns, it dawns on one. sometimes things turn out badly you know sometimes your your will isn't enough to overturn uh, a situation or a country can get itself into a position where it it makes a huge mistake so i i think in these stories as opposed to the ones in 10th of december i was trying to in in 10th of december i was trying to find moments where people could do something that would cause a positive outcome you know sort of a, a quiet heroism and i just was intrigued by that and i kept finding Opportunities for that in the story, and then thinking, well, actually, that's the most authentic thing I could do. The most original thing I could do is steer the story toward the happy outcome if I could make it work. This time, there were several points. It happened in Ghoul, it happened in Liberation Day, it happened in a thing at work where I could see where I, I could guide it that way. But something about it, given the preceding parts of the story, was false. It would have been a kind of a, a, a bullshit way of saying all is well when the stories seem to be saying well sometimes all is not well at least on the immediate level now the way i find hope in these stories is that in every single one of them somebody starts off deluded or tricked or you know out of touch with reality and then stumbles toward a more accurate understanding of the situation which isn't always a you know a party but at this point i think that's you know in a sense as a country that's what we're trying to do is say oh can we get back in touch with some kind of truth you know some kind of reliable and mutually shared view of reality.
2: Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll take what we can get at this stage. I think it's twenty six years now. I think since your first book was published, at least in the UK, and I'm only thirty. It's impossible. Uh, just, <laughs> yeah, <I'll> just, <laughs> well, what have you? What, what have you learned, George? Does it well? Does it get easier?
3: I, I would say it does. Yes, because the the one thing that's changed is I'm. I've kind of divested myself of the, the narrative of the muse uh, you know, the idea that you either have it or you don't, or if this is the wrong story to be writing. And I've kind of relaxed into an answer that says, well, if a story is confounding you, it just wants to be something you're not ready for yet. You know, it's kind of a sense of patience that, and even enjoyment, if a story is, is kind of kicking my ass a little bit, I, I think, oh, that's fun. This'll be a really good one because it's so disobedient, you know, that, that kind of feeling. Yeah. So it's been, I mean, actually it's been such a rich thing, you know, to have with me all these years. And it's sort of like a a record of, I would say sort of like a record of my best self. You know, the, I mean, if I look at my actual life during that period, it's kind of a, you know, mid-level anxious dope, really, you know, nothing, always a little behind the the news, you know, and a little insufficiently tender and all that. But at the same time, the subconscious was spitting out these little these stories that, that are smarter than that person actually, and I think they're also more empathetic than that person. You know, so that it's been a really lovely companion all these years.
2: And you teach—we uh, uh, mentioned earlier—you teach creative writing at, uh, at Syracuse University. Uh, what, what what do you learn from your students? Well, the biggest thing is just that you
3: know talent is always with us. That I mean, as you get older, there's sort of a tendency to eh, ever since 1982, it's all been downhill. Um, But, you know, every every fall to have this group of six students that we've chosen from 700 applicants, you know, so they're extraordinary writers and people. Then suddenly you think, okay, so the burden is on me to to understand the way they're trying to communicate and the burden is on me to try to be helpful to them. And then, you know, also just that beautiful feeling of being paid to foster tenderness towards these people, you know, um, to, to say, well, if, if I could possibly help them on their path, that would be so wonderful, you know. So then you become a better listener. Uh, you're constantly calling in to question your own aesthetic values, which tend to get rigid. Uh, so it's it's just a wonderful, I mean, selfishly, it's just a wonderful thing to to be uh, always forced off autopilot. With those students, if you go in with a even a slightly lazy agenda, though, I mean, they'll be, they're very nice about it, but you can feel that they won't take it,
2: you know. <laughs> so it's it's... We, we know about your, your love for the, for the 19th century Russians, of course, but which, uh, which contemporary writers do you do you recommend to our listeners?
3: I am a big fan. I'm in awe of Marlon James. I, I think what he does is so incredible and um, kind of just big, Faulknerian, Tony Morrison-type novels. He's somebody I'm really keen on right now. I just read a really wonderful book by uh, Jonathan D, who's a colleague of mine at Syracuse called Sugar Street. And it's just a little punch, a little Dostoevskian punch. Uh, I I won't give it away, but it's got one of the most shocking endings, you know, and that's been perfectly built to. And that was was exciting to read. There's a a short story writer who actually was a student of ours named Rebecca Curtis, who I think is a little bit undervalued, but she's got a book called 50 Grand and funny, uh, dark, and just so so confident. I've also been reading Brandon Taylor, writes some really wonderful short stories. Yeah, so there's a. I, I kind of had about a, a three year lapse in contemporary because of the Russians. I was reading basically the same eight stories for, for two or three years. <laughs> so I'm trying to catch up.
2: Good, now. good stories to read it, uh, for, for for three years though. Um, you, uh, George, you. I mean, you've you, you've won awards. You're you're widely read. I'm just wondering what at this stage in your career, what success means to you as a writer. I mean, is it, is it down to the still the, the the screen and the what Frank O'Connor called the the happiness of getting it down right, or is there is there more yeah. to it than that? Yeah, that's a great question. I I think, you know what, having
3: a longer career is really nice because you can sort of separate out the pleasures. So there's definitely the pleasure of getting attention. That's something I I have always enjoyed and finally admitted that I enjoy. Uh, there's the pleasure of traveling in support of the book. That's fun, but the one that seems to last is the thrill of the hunt. You know, to be to be sitting in front of a two page piece of crap that you that you wrote. And then say, okay, I, I know this. I can, if I abide with this, I, I can get it. And then that process of abiding has to do with all these nice virtues, like patience, um, faith. You know, you have to actually think somewhat deeply about other people's experience. So I, I think what I've really come to value is just that moment when a story starts to open up to you and you think, yeah, this, this one might work. And you know, you've got several months ahead of you of deep, deep digging that doesn't change. That that's something you can really count on. The rest of it is kind of circumstantial. But it's I always think it's like when a sculpture a sculptor first the face starts to come out of the stone, and you're like, oh, this story is going to tell me something I didn't know, and it will be it'll be beautiful if I keep working. That that's the moment that I I kind of live for.
2: George, thank you very much. Um, that was uh, George Saunders, author of Liberation Day, which is available now from Bloomsbury. Uh, I've been John Self. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening. Thank you, John.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to IQ2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.
0: What are you doing right now?